In 2015, the National Park Service issued a statement asking shops at its sites across the nation to stop selling the Confederate battle flag. The decision came in the weeks after the shooting of nine worshipers at the historic Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The shooter had posted photos online of himself posing with a Confederate flag in front of Confederate landmarks. The statement sparked a broader discussion of whether gift shops should sell any Confederate memorabilia. To find out how the gift shop at the new American Civil War Museum navigates the politics of these issues, Melissa went to the gift shop and spoke with Stephanie Arduini, Director of Education and Programming at the museum. So what's really interesting about gift shops and museums is that they are a tool for extending a visitor's experience with us. So we do think a lot about not only the business aspect of what can people buy, what are they looking for, how much are they willing to spend, but also how the products that we have in that shop relate to how we're telling our stories that either represent the stories that we're telling in our exhibits and our programs or help to extend that learning experience. So one thing that speaks to me that's very different but representative of our new institution is a shirt that we're standing right next to with a picture of Frederick Douglass on it. But instead of just being a picture of Frederick Douglass, it comes in a layered, stylized set of colors that looks very contemporary with the way that it's designed. And that's something that I am really excited about as a young adult because I would buy this and wear it. It looks cool. It looks hip. It also has a picture of a person whose stories people might not be as familiar with, but we definitely wanted to make sure we're well represented in the new institution. Tell me a little bit about the Confederate imagery that will or will not be visible at the gift shop. We stopped carrying the Army of Tennessee Confederate battle flag shortly after the events related to Charleston and Charlottesville over that year. We pulled it pretty quickly uh, and stopped selling it in the shop and on our website. We still carry some flags related to specific units, but that traditional battle flag that's often seen tied to people who use it as a symbol of white supremacy, we've had long institutional conversations about what that means and balancing our ability to tell the story of the Confederacy because you can't tell the story of the Civil War without the Confederacy with also that idea of feeling like people should be able to honor their ancestors if that's what they want to, but we don't want the things that we're selling to be misappropriated, misappropriated as symbols of hate. So for the large flag of the Army of Tennessee battle flag, we pulled that pretty quickly. That's the one that people traditionally, like when, when I say the Confederate flag in 2019, that's it's the Army of Tennessee? Yeah, so the one with the red field and the blue cross or X on that that you see often associated with, you know, the rally at Char in Charlottesville. We also use that moment to think about where else is that flag on our products? How could this be misappropriated for something hateful? And have thought very carefully about that, especially when it comes to items that are cheap, that kids buy on souvenir field trips, where they're not really thinking about the full ramifications of what they purchase. They're just really excited to have 5 or $10 for mom to spend in a gift shop somewhere on a field trip. So we pulled small items 
that they might have had those battle flags on them and instead tried to find some other products that kids would find interesting and useful and still fit that amount that they could take with them on the field trip so they could have that souvenir to take home but wouldn't risk having a really messy history attached to that. So what kind of products did you have to pull in addition to just the, the, the flag? We pulled some small souvenir items like keychains, shot glasses, even small items of jewelry that had a Confederate battle flag on it. And that felt, uh, that lacked the context and nuance that we want to convey to people when they come and visit our sites. So if something had a Confederate battle flag on it, but it was also contextualized with phrases about the Civil War and an American flag or cannons and things like that, that is harder to misappropriate. But for something that might have been a necklace or bracelet that had a charm on it, or just a keychain of that same kind of Army of Tennessee battle flag on it, we pulled those because that was just, it was too risky for us. We'd rather have somebody think, something that somebody could have a more nuanced conversation or representation with. So can you give me an example? Is there an item here that kind of displays both in that way that you're talking about? That's a good question. Let's go look. So we're standing in front of a wall of shelves with coffee mugs and shot glasses. And there's a coffee mug here that looks like something you would expect to find at a Civil War gift shop. And it's got a Confederate soldier on a horse holding a Confederate battle flag and a U.S. soldier next to a cannon with the U.S. flag. And it says the Civil War in Virginia. It's got the flag. It's contextualized by being with soldiers on a battlefield. It's going to be harder for this to be something that you have on a desk and feel like, hmm, this guy might have more nefarious intent or hateful intent. This is something that says history, the Civil War. And so we were okay with that. Mm. And that's on some shot glasses, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's mugs with Abraham Lincoln, I'm assuming, at the Museum of the Confederacy gift shop, would I have been able to buy a mug with Jefferson Davis on it? We had some that had Def Jefferson Davis's face on it here and there. But honestly, most people, when they were buying a person, an individual from the representing the Confederacy, the person people most buy is Robert E. Lee, probably followed by Stonewall Jackson. But you could find Jefferson Davis on some things, mm -hmm. but that's not what most people bought. And when you were making these decisions and kind of talking about these things, was it very much with the understanding that you wanted the message of the museum to carry through in the gift shop? Yes, it's absolutely true. We wanted to make sure that folks could explore this new or different interpretation of the Civil War and then have something to take home with them. Tell me a little bit about how you guys have tried to use even the purchase of what flag someone's going to buy as an opportunity to learn more about the history. We have one of the largest collections of Civil War flags in the country, and we know a lot of really rich stories that go with those and the diversity of flags that are out there, especially when it came to individual units' flags and those personal touches that they put on. And we were excited to bring some of those flags to the public for sale. What we find really interesting is that sometimes we've had people come in and they say, my ancestor fought for the Confederacy, for example, and they'd like, I want to buy a flag. 
to honor my ancestor. And our staff have been trained to ask questions about, well, great, who was your ancestor? Which unit did he fight in? And start to narrow it down. So instead of coming for just a Confederate battle flag, having a more nuanced conversation about the history itself and often connecting our visitors to a more historically accurate flag that also could be less offensive to some people who might see that as a symbol of oppression. That's Stephanie Arduini with producer Melissa Gismondi at the American Civil War Museum's gift shop in Richmond, Virginia. So, Ed, Joanne, you all have the benefit of working on some of the most contentious fields in American history. And I got to ask you, from your vantage point as, you know, basically people living in the 21st century, why are people still debating the Civil War so much? Well, one point, and it's a minor one, but I think it's a worthwhile one, is, you know, as historians, I think any time that we're confronting the past— there's a component of it that that feels real and vibrant that we have to reckon with. But I think in a larger way for the public, you have the sort of ancient-seeming wars like the Revolution and the War of 1812, mm. which I think to people are very, very far away. And then you have what probably seem to many people like far more recent wars that seem modern, even World War I, but certainly World War II, that people have some way of reckoning with. The Civil War sits at a kind of middle point that is the past and yet is is grounded in so many issues that are fundamentally still being reckoned with in the present that I think it's a tangled subject for people to deal with. Yeah, and it's precisely because of that tangle, that contentiousness that I felt drawn to it like a moth to a flame. <laughs> uh, you know, I resisted it for a long time uh, because the Civil War is associated with sort of kitsch and also with a kind of, you know, vibrant buffdom uh, that seems sometimes to repel scholarly understanding. But I came to believe that if we're going to understand the United States, we had to sort of walk into the into the teeth of this and try to see if we could figure it out for ourselves in ways that we could explain to other people. That's the, the big challenge. You know, often I point out that there's been a book a week written about the Civil War since the Civil oh War. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, over 54,000 books. Uh, wow. <laughs> I got some reading to do. My goodness. <laughs> well, and so that's why I devoted part of my life to writing one more. That seems like such a, 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 a savvy thing to do. But right. how can it be that we can know so much and understand so little? For mm. me, that's been the interesting challenge about thinking about the Civil War for the last couple of decades. It seems that everybody has an opinion about it, but those opinions don't really seem to align with evidence or with what other people think. So it's the place where the rubber really hits the road, I think, in historic understanding of this nation. And Ed, I mean, the the debate of those 54,000 volumes, I'm sure, has some bearing on military history. But the big questions, I'm sure, are not about whether or not, say, Robert E. Lee should have tried to take an uphill position over two days at Gettysburg, right? <laughs> the, what, what seems to be maybe the big arching debate that, as far as you can see it? You know, what's discouraging is that the issues of debate today are the same as they've been for generation after generation, which is what caused the Civil War? And the most recent polls, the most recent polls I've seen show 
say that states' rights is what caused yeah. the Civil War. That is sort of blameless, that uh, people were fighting for what they thought was right, and they were fighting for their rights. But then people say, well, it was, it was states' rights, but then below that, it was also what people call economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this somehow got encoded in our thinking in the early 20th century uh, and refuses to go away, which is that the Civil War was a conflict between an industrial North and an agrarian South. I hear this every time I go out and and speak. People just Mm. sort of say, well, that's all it really was, right? And it's like, what does agrarian mean? Right. It Mm. means if you're producing the single most valuable commodity in the world with perpetual bondage, Mm. I guess that's agrarian. It doesn't really sound like, you know, uh, a family farm, which is the Mm. way that it often comes out. And the North is not really industrial this time. Most of the soldiers fighting each other in the Civil War were farmers on both sides of this. And then the question is, why in the world would an industrial nation dependent upon its agrarian half go to war to destroy it? So there's so many evasions and elisions and just sort of willful (laughs) refusal to look at the evidence because people simply don't want to acknowledge that slavery was this serpent at the heart of the nation. They'd like Mm. to find something that they imagine lets everybody off the hook. And it makes it so um, stark and um, in a literal kind of a way, bloodless, right? Oh, it's a political conflict. Oh, no, it's an economic conflict. No, it's a human conflict, and it's about humanity on so many different levels. And those other sort of cold-blooded ways of looking at it really remove the the essence of the conflict itself. Yeah, you know, it's it strikes me. It's like a museum exhibit where they've roped off all the dangerous parts of the <laughs> exhibit, right? No, don't go in there. Don't go into the slavery room uh, because that's just too scary to think about. But, you know, I've wondered why it can be that—and this is not um, simply divided Northerners and Southerners disagreeing. There's not really much difference in this 40 percent of people who think it's the state's rights cause between the North and the South. Westerners are pretty certain that it's slavery, but Northerners and Southerners today. um, And young people believe it as much as older people. So it's not that we're making progress and explaining to people Mm -hmm. how this is. And I've tried to figure this out. And one thing that occurs to me is that people who are cynical about the North uh, from looking at it today find it hard to imagine that there was ever a time when there was enough moral purpose in the United States to go to war to end slavery. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Of course, they're right (laughs) in in that sense, right? And so, Joanne, I'd be curious, you know, when you're out on the hustings and, you know, you're talking about a book about the coming of the Civil War, how do you avoid going into these cul-de-sacs of explanation where there doesn't seem to be any way out of them? Well, I mean, speaking as an early national historian who sort of got sucked into the Civil War vortex, (laughs) um, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about is is the deeper roots of Mm -hmm. that later period. So a lot of what I'm talking about is, you know, I mean, it really does go back to the founding. It really does go back to the writing into the Constitution of slavery Mm -hmm. and the way in which the nation had to reckon with that and the many reasons why in the 1830s that becomes more of an issue. So so it isn't, you know, I I do think, I think the revolution and the Civil War, speaking as someone who's (laughs) written about the revolution, people see them, I think, 
often as these little isolated bubble moments. Right, right. And of course, the, their meaning is wrapped up in the very fact that they aren't those kinds of moments. Um, and so I think for me, in talking about the Civil War, um, I'm always looking back deeper and deeper into the the roots of where that comes from. And, and as a political historian, I'm interested in seeing how that gets sort of institutionalized. How, how does it become so difficult to dig up those roots? And that's the tricky thing. Those roots are deep and real. And yet, people on the very cusp of the war didn't believe that it could happen. Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of unpredictable events leading to the very concrete series of sort of coincidences and events that bring on the war at the same time that we know that the origins lie deep in American past. And so the trick is not to have it be all sort of industrial and agrarian. Those roots are there. On the other hand, not to be, well, you know, if he hadn't tried to resupply Fort Sumter, there wouldn't have been a civil right. war, the sort of thing that I hear all the time. <laughs> so to, to your question, Nathan, you know, as a historical problem, uh, right. it really does combine sort of the intrinsic challenges of our discipline in a really concrete and unavoidable way. I guess I have a question for you. Uh, looking at it from the uh, imperial distance of the, of the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, sure. you know, what does it seem to matter to you as you try to uh, wrestle with the problems of your own period? What, what, what does it matter that we get right about the Civil War? So I think there are extraordinarily powerful, um, iconic objects and images and themes that come out of the 19th century. I mean, as, as a 20th century person, you know, specialist in that, in that century, you're almost in, in a way beholden to, you know, deferring to the 19th century people as like the real U.S. historians, right? And by extension, the landscape of like memory around the 19th century is, is almost just too powerful to ignore um, and not have a certain kind of deference to. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, when, when I was, you know, th- coming up as a, you know, student in like middle school and high school, right? I mean, well, watching, say, the, the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War, I mean, that was an aesthetically beautiful rendering of the past, regardless of what you might think about its historical content or the narration or the music, right? That there was something about that particular image of the past that was so romantic that I remember, like, plagiarizing lines from love letters to, like, my girlfriend at the time to, like, try to make it seem like I was especially poetic. No, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But but uh, but combine that with, you know, the power of monuments around the country. Combine that with the kind of, you know, lure of, of objects, like, say, a saber behind the glass. Or even, or even say, you know, the, the Confederate battle flag in an image of massive resistors, you know, pushing back against school desegregation in the South. Re- regardless of the politics, the image itself is aesthetically powerful. And so as a 20th century person, I feel like part of my burden or challenge um, or unique obligation, frankly, is being able to wrestle with that afterlife of the Civil War and figure out to what extent there are, you know, fictions or facts kind of mired in the way that we're supposed to frame the events that are unfolding in the Civil War shadow. And, the you know, the emotion and the um, other ways in which contemporary meanings get invested in that event. I mean, speaking as a woman— the Civil War was not on my radar screen in any way. It felt to me like a male thing, even before I was a historian. It was a place where guys talked mm. about battles. It was a place, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was a male thing. I didn't, I don't think I had any perception that it was more than soldiers fighting and men talking about soldiers right. fighting, you know. So it, it didn't even, mm. um, as a younger person, make it 
onto my sort of my radar of my understanding of American history. It was just the violent middle part <laughs> that, that, that I somehow, <laughs> you know, didn't feel like I was a part of. Well, you know, I shouldn't admit this, but growing up as a white Southerner, I couldn't have cared less about the Civil War, uh, you know, partly because we were raised on TV shows and movies about World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. And so your Ken Burns, uh, Nathan, was in many ways my battlefield, my World War II <laughs> show. So, and then I go to graduate school in the wake of Vietnam in which, Joanne, what you're talking about is that not only was it gendered, but it was also generationed. You mm-hmm. know, no, we don't really talk about that military history stuff. Mm-hmm. And oh, so I, yeah. I rejected it for a long time. But it's the very thing that Nathan's talking about, just recognizing the gravitational pull it exerts on everything else that happened before and after, really, mm-hmm. uh, that made me decide that you had to, to go face it. Now, you, you talked about the artifacts, Nathan. I think that's one reason the museum is an especially volatile, uh, dangerous, and important place to have these things. Mm. If, you, if you read surveys, Americans say, and this kind of hurts our feelings a little bit, uh, that they trust museums more than any other institutions to explain the past. And it's something about the reality of the artifact. You can't argue. Yep. Right. Those are those spurs. (laughs) (laughs) There they were. Right. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, as Christy and our friends have, you know, crafted uh, the American Civil War Museum, and they do have the largest collection of Civil War artifacts in private hands in the world coming from Mm. the Museum of the Confederacy. So we have the things like, you know, Lee's tent, (laughs) you know, things Mm. that are are very palpable. Um, how do you orchestrate those to tell a story that is both compelling because of its concrete manifestations, but also has some of the gravitas, right. you know, that's right. not just the stuff on the battlefield, not just one more sword, but how do you make it tell a story that swept up the entire nation? And and the thing about artifacts, too, is, depending on the artifact, they can have such a palpable power that, that just as you're suggesting, Ed, you don't always need words for that story to be told. So, you know, mm-hmm. for example, I was just working on something and we were reckoning with how to talk about slavery in early America and actually in the Caribbean, so in the late 18th century. And we decided that we would get shackles to put one of the first things you'll confront would would be this these shackles, adult shackles and child shackles. And there was a mm. debate about how to present them, and one person was talking about possibly um, what, what kind of label or what kind of words could explain them. And we ultimately decided there would be no words because there's nothing more powerful than walking in and, and being standing in front of that, particularly these, these little shackles for a child. Right. You don't need words to tell that story. That That's going to smack you in the face when you see it. But there's such a power. I mean, this is part of what, for me, has always been the fun about working with museums. There's such a power in things that sometimes can grab you at a level that is almost beyond words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting, the struggles we had going over all the labels for this museum and knowing we could have no more than 150 words to describe anything and realizing the power of every single word Mm -hmm. to try to get it right. At the same time, recognizing that the average amount of time that someone spends in front of a museum exhibit is 20 seconds. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> and so how do you, you have this you know, visceral power, and yet it has to be sort of orchestrated into an emotional journey. Uh, this museum, the American Civil War Museum, um, is very consciously laid out 
to strike different emotions at different times and recognizing that you basically can't feel that strongest emotion all the time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, how do you look at the exhibit about the treatment of the wounded and then a- about the moment of emancipation and about the tactics on the battlefield? How do you weave those together in a way that makes sense? So mm-hmm. um, I'm glad we had museum professionals who have a lot better idea of how to do this than just somebody who deals with words knows. <laughs> 